0: Hi, Mark here from Climactic. Just a quick note before we get into this special episode from the University of Melbourne's Living Pavilion. It was quite noisy on this recording, and there's a slight change of venue, so I apologize in advance for any background noise, but honestly, it adds quite a bit, and it's still a really enjoyable listening experience. And you'll learn a lot about food. The politics, the way food can be treated as activism, indigenous rights, food sovereignty, nutrition, and of course, climate change.
1: Enjoy!
2: Hello, my name is Bronwyn Johnson and I'm the director of Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival, presented by Climart. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the festival takes place, and acknowledge the Wurundjeri people on whose lands the program you're about to hear was staged and recorded. Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 is a socially engaged festival of ideas, exhibitions and events. Presenting over 30 curated exhibitions at leading museums and galleries in Melbourne and regional Victoria, the 2019 festival considers ideas and concepts around art and activism, community engagement, transition and accelerated action on climate change. In this festival, artists, curators, scientists and policy experts envisage a world where we protect and care for our Earth. From the river systems, oceans and lands to the air. We breathe. As we know, actions to reduce global warming will only arise from communities based upon fairness, indigenous knowledge, cooperation, and through valuing the arts and sciences. Let's join now with the artists, curators, scientists and policy experts through this festival programme, Climate Bites, at the Living Pavilion at the University of Melbourne.
0: If there's anyone um, at the Living Pavilion here ready for climate bites discussion about food, please come and join us here in the maker space. Hello. Thank you for joining us today. So welcome to Climate Bites, which is a program presented as part of Climate's Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival at the Living Pavilion at the University of Melbourne. And the Living Pavilion is actually the Art Plus Climate Equals Change Festival hub. As Cathy said, I'm Renee Beale and I'm the producer of Climate Bites series. Um, where. are They are lunchtime info-packed sessions with experts on topics such as food, water, nature and fashion where hopefully you can take away some practical knowledge and tips to bite back against our climate emergency. This is our second discussion as part of the Climate Bites series and we'll focus on food. So Climate Bites is being held on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and to extend that respect to all Indigenous people joining us today. The Wurundjeri people are this region's first scientists, patiently observing and sometimes gently shaping the ecosystem they so effectively cared for for thousands of years. As a scientist who studied at this great university, I am humbled by the deep knowledge of the Wurundjeri and also other Indigenous communities. And I feel incredibly grateful for their generosity in reaching out to educate and work with scientists in how we can best care for land together. Now to food, we are what we eat and we reap what we sow. Climate change is causing warmer, drier conditions making it difficult to produce high yielding crops. Vineyards are shifting south pollinating insect populations are declining will we have no other choice than to change our eating behaviours will coffee and chocolate fixes become a thing of the past Are vertical farms and lab grown products necessarily the solutions to feeding our growing population how can we effectively balance the want of personal freedom to choose what we eat versus the need for collective action around food futures So just what should we plant and eat to take care of ourselves and our planet? Joining us for this illuminating discussion on Monday the 13th of May and to hopefully help unpack some of these questions are Sophie Lamont and very shortly Nick Rose will be with us as well. He's actually teaching at the moment um, in a rather awkward position down at, it'll be William Anglis, Yes. Um, So he'll pop in and join us uh, shortly as well. But I'll introduce both Sophie and Nick so we don't have to stop and introduce Nick at that time so that you know who your experts are for this panel. So Sophie Lamond is a PhD student at the Melbourne School of Government, University of Melbourne, researching campus food movements and the contributions institutions can make to transforming food systems. She runs the Fair Food Challenge and has managed community kitchens and mentored food projects in her spare time. Nick Rose is a specialist in sustainable food systems and food movements. He's the Executive Director of Sustain, The Australian Food Network, the editor of Fair Food Stories from a Movement Changing the World, and co-founded and coordinated the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance between 2010 and 2015. Climactic are recording this discussion which will be made into a podcast so you can listen to it afterwards. Climactic tells the stories of people making a difference and aim to be the people's voice on climate change embedded in the community, producing stories from the perspective of actual people. So we thank them for that. So to start us off, I thought I might ask the first question. And then if you'd like to ask a question, please just put up your hand and you can join into the discussion anytime you'd like. So we were going to start off with just some basic stuff about the food system, but since Nick's running a little bit late from his class, I thought we might hold off since both Sophie and Nick have a background in food, sustainable food systems. And I thought we might start with Sophie because Sophie is like the, the, the biggest fountain of knowledge whenever I'm confused about what I should be eating not for necessarily always for myself, but also if I'm thinking about the planet. So I thought I might ask you a question about that, just to put you on the spot. And then if other people have got sort of confusing things that maybe you're trying to eat well and sustainably, but it's you, you're having trouble making your way through the complexities of that, please just join into the discussion and ask a question. So... One of my favourite things that I always like to ask, because I'm lactose intolerant, so it means that I don't drink dairy milk, <laughs> which is always a challenge because uh, there's obviously a lot of different substitutes. There's soy, there's oats, there's almond milk. And so at the previous Climate Bites event that we had around water, one of the expert panels said that it... Um, Almond trees take a lot of water, so um, in order to get good almond crops, you need to use a lot of water, which isn't particularly sustainable in Australia, so I figure that's not very good for me to eat almond, like drink um, that much almond milk, and then soy has other issues, so I'm wondering what your comments are around that.
1: Uh, I'd first like to just offer the caveat that um, while I have ambitions towards sustainable food and I like to think a lot about what I eat, I in no way position myself as a a perfect eater and I think it would be very hard for anyone to be. So I I just like framing that about um, how important it is to you know, take this stuff seriously and to think about it and engage with it, um, but to not beat yourself up too much about not always being the 100% better sticks I think there are so many complexities that it is very hard to arrive at these absolutist kind of answers. I think the milk one is really an interesting, um, a particularly interesting issue. I mean, that's always almond, for example, does take an incredible amount of water, but it's still about a quarter of the amount of water as uh, cow milk. Um, I can't speak explicitly to different livestock. I'm not sure about sheep and goat milk and how that um, comes out in terms of water intensity. But I think one of the, the complicated things, I don't want to say bad things, one of the complicated things about getting deeper and deeper into food systems, and I'm teaching at the moment politics of food, so having these great discussions with my students who are coming from all around the world, you sort of turn corners into more and more complexity. So you think about water, you have these trade-offs uh, with things like dairy are incredibly intensive, but they're then again in some landscapes that's very much suited to what is the best thing to grow there. You know, we can have rice milk, but there are some regions of Australia where I think irrigation of rice is probably just the wrong thing for the landscape. Therefore I don't think that it being a plant based milk is definitely better than having dairy cows necessarily. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently that we don't talk about as much and I think does go into sustainable futures is really around labour. And I recently found out that there's a huge amount of labour exploitation in um, the harvesting of nuts around the world. So um, the harvesting of cashews, which I didn't really know much about, A cashew is like a droop. It's not... uh, not It comes in this big sort of fruit. And picking that away to get out the cashew, is it it exudes this incredibly acidic, toxic substance. So the women, especially in India, who are harvesting that, end up suffering these very severe burns. I'm not saying never have a cashew again, but nuts, for example, don't fall under fair trade systems because they're just not one of the commodities that are monitored in those kinds of things. So I don't think it's a... I mean, that's not really an answer. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But it's not saying there is one thing that is better than another. It's saying we have a responsibility as eaters to look into the complexities of these things and work out where we are in the world, the climates that we live in, the livelihoods that we're supporting with our communities. You know, Australia has this really strong dairy farming community. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever transition. But I think we need to think about these things in a systemic way to think about what both social and ecological sustainability can look like and make sure that we're following that through as much through things like almond milk and cashew milk and rice milk and thinking about them in context. Great. Does anyone have
0: a question, or I've got another one.
1: <laughs>
0: if no one else has one, it's very rare that I get you <laughs> standing still for this long. So, talking about eating, you're almost saying, you know, look at where you're situated in the world and eat, you know, as kind of locally relevant as you possibly can. I've got a question around that because where I am in in Geelong and mm-hmm. Great Ocean Road territory, we have access to organic food Mm -hmm. but not terribly much of it and so when when I go to shop I would prefer to buy organic if I can however a lot of our organics are coming in from other states of Australia actually where we are and so then I've got this sort of conflict about the amount of carbon miles that are attached to my food versus kind of eating organic And we don't sort of have, it seems like here in Melbourne, there's a lot more strict rules around farmers markets and what can be, in terms of fresh fruit and veggies, what can be sold at those farmers markets. Whereas in Geelong, we don't have those strict rules that it sort of has to be from the grower. So people can kind of buy from Footscray Market and then Mm on-sell at a farmers market.
1: They may not be specifically certified farmer's markets, so there's a complexity yes. there. But I suppose there's a couple of examples that I can bring to mind about, you know, once again, these trade-offs. Um, I feel like I'm going to leave with more questions than answers. I'm sorry. But, say, for example, to best of my knowledge, it is illegal to shoot, sell, like, sell and retail kangaroo in Victoria. So all the kangaroo that you eat in Victoria doesn't come from Victoria. It either comes from South Australia or Tasmania. That is still a more sustainable meat than your theoretical cow in your backyard you know so I guess there's a question about you know do you want to support a small-scale organic beef farmer who has these very very high standards and is doing a lot of regenerative work with the soil and a part of soil regeneration which is a huge part of sustainability is animal inputs and I'm not saying therefore we get a, a cut lunch to eat all the animals we want for the rest of our lives and we should all eat more I honestly believe that everyone across the board should be eating much much less animal products but animals are a part of that system of growing plants and the inputs we need but once again it's context specific and I mean the carbon miles thing there's there's a study that's often quoted that says you know in London it's still more sustainable to eat New Zealand lamb than it is to eat English lamb because of the pasture that it grows on that is often like trotted out as a justification to eat things from across the world but I think once again it comes to the thing like I mean, I have. I was making a joke one day because I'm just being facetious, as I always am. As someone about talking about local food over coffee, and I was like, "Well, clearly we all know there's no coffee grown in Melbourne. You know, no, I don't. You know, the energy required to grow a functional coffee crop in Melbourne would be disproportionate to the sustainability of growing something close by. So. I think, once again, it comes to thinking about what is it that I'm eating? You know, like, I remember being in Gippsland and the IGA or something. I was in the country. And I was like, wait a second, but all the beef here is Warrnambool beef. This seems silly. And then someone said, like, it doesn't really matter because it all has to go back to Melbourne to get certified anyway. So by the time it's come back to even if it is local, it's still gone back and forth about four times to go through the supply chains and the abattoirs and the um, food safety checks it needs to. So... By all means, if there is an orchardist growing apples and the down the roads, I would always choose that knowing that it was if I was in Hartford, I would think it was ridiculous to grow eat Tasmanian apples because Hartford has some of the most delicious apples in Australia. But I wouldn't be expecting Hartford bananas. And I still enjoy bananas, I think they've got nutritional value, I think they're one of Australia's most popular fruits. I wouldn't be expecting that. So I think it really does come into this thing about taking that responsibility to think it sensibly about, you know, like is it Is the most important thing to my meal quinoa from Bolivia or is it looking at what grains go well in my community and my farming neighbourhoods? I feel like I just keep saying the same thing, which is it's really complicated. And I think one of the things is I don't want to push too much back onto the eater's responsibility because I think, honestly, the questions, the answers to these kinds of things and what I'm talking about are often very opaque and find to heart. So I, I don't want to get the impression that I'm giving, which is we all should just do more research and be better, be better. Like, you just you have to be better at what you're doing. I think we actually need to advocate as a collective community for more transparency and more conversations around our food so these the questions are easier to answer.
0: So, yeah, so on that regard, is it a a labelling problem? If it's not so much on the individual, how does the individual now take more responsibility for what they're eating? So the question was, is it a labelling problem or an issue where we need better labels so that we know what we're eating?
1: In part, yes, I think that it is. But that being said, I think that labelling can offer cover over a whole lot of things as well. So, for example, fair trade is a really classic answer because fair trade is good, It is good, but to be a part of that certification is still very, very expensive. So there are a lot of very high-functioning, sustainable, regenerative, agroecological farmers who can't afford to pay that money for that label, therefore they're being left out of that system. So Nestle is really good at getting fair trade certification. McDonald's are part of the Rainforest Alliance, so corporations who can pay that money are very good at getting those stickers on their products, whereas small farmers may not have that economy of scale to participate in that system. So I think on one hand labelling is a way to get some things communicated and I think for some things especially around you know saturated fat it's a very, you know, this is a yes-no answer that we can answer with this label However, once again, the complexity is it can sometimes be reductive to do that. And then the question is, is what do we label? Do we label the water sources? Do we label the carbon? And at which point do we just end up with 25 labels and then they all become a bit meaningless? So I think there's actually a lot to be said there for regulation as well, which is pushing everyone towards more sustainable standards. And probably one of the interesting examples of that in Australia more recently has been the sort of shift towards free-range eggs, and that's still imperfect. So the supermarkets, I mean, I think the standard that was asked for was 1,500 hens per acre, and the standards that the supermarket sort of snuck over the line was 10,000 hens per acre, which arguably is probably not as free-range as you want to think it is when you're purchasing it. But that is still a much more marked shift from cage eggs being a standard 10, 15 years ago. So I think there's a sort of incrementalism, which, you know, can be lacklustre as a political tool, but an incrementalism Mm -hmm. to that sort of sense of labelling and legislation and consumer demand and corporate response and smallholder, you know, action. But it's hard then to find the diagnostic in that, which is this is the thing we should be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So the question was around food waste. And once again, it comes back a bit to that sort of personal responsibility versus uh, bigger social change. And this is an issue really close to my heart. It's probably one of the first things I got into around food systems is just being like fascinated by it. I think the statistics at the moment i'm actually quite keen to see a refresh of these because i think the same statistics and data has been around for a while but roughly one third of all food is wasted australia wastes just 20 billion dollars a year but the equivalent of basically one in five of every time you fill out the fridge we throw out or one in five grocery bags we throw out so it's a huge amount of waste and if i mean the classic one of the classic lines is that if food waste was a country it would be the third biggest emitter in the world Gases that come out of food waste are about 21 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So that is actually a huge environmental hazard. Food decomposing in landfill is a very, very hazardous substance, so it shouldn't be in landfill. I'm really excited. I live in Moreland, and from the 1st of July, we can put our food waste into our our green waste bin. And I think, for me, like, I've been having this conversation for five or six years now, and I think it's really important to educate people about this stuff. Like, my housemates, I mean, I'd like to think they love me, but I think they're just like, oh, my God. Like, I have been slowly kind of, like, being like, hey, this is the worms, meet our worms, and do this, and, you know, and they might have to separate out the things that the worms can't eat, which is, like, the citrus and the onion, and I get on that in the tram, and I'm sitting there with all my scraps Bring that to uni, and I mean, the admission to that is it's a lot of work. Like, I have actually put in a huge amount of like, I've got little cute signs for my housemates, I've you know, and I like you know, carry my waste around, and I take some of the zodiac and I take some of it the community gun. And that's like over the year, that's quite a bit of work. And I appreciate, like, I grew up in a household that was me and my single working mother, and you know, she was both ill and very busy at various times in her life. I'm not expecting people who have shift jobs and three kids to carry their food scraps around all week. I think that's ridiculous. I think it's really good to have that kind of education around that kind of stuff, but I think we do need to demand the legislation and the infrastructure that says, how is the easiest way for us to participate in this behaviour change? I think we need to push a lot further back on corporations, and I think supermarkets like, oh, well, it's consumers' fault, because they just, like, really like red apples that are perfectly round, and we can't change that in plastic. And I think, you know, that is one of my absolute pet hates, is just, like, food that's wrapped in plastic. I was saying in a meeting, this isn't actually a food waste thing, but this morning, the one thing on campus, like, there are so many things that annoy me, is that at one of the retailers, you not only do they have straws, every single straw is individually wrapped in plastic. And I was just like, that is something that we could legitimately just have a policy from tomorrow saying we're not going to accept that on this campus anymore. So I think... I would like to see things as these nested systems, which is what's my personal responsibility? How do I talk to my friends and acquaintances about that, i.e. how do my housemates now know everything about the worms because I won't shut up about them? How is it that I can be an activist in my community here on this campus? How is it that I can work with my local council? How is it that I can elect someone to state and federal levels? So seeing these kind of nested things as this sort of interconnected responsibility that we can do together and acknowledging that it's not always going to be easy or possible for everyone, but we've just got to shift it a bit more towards that Infrastructural legislative um, level, which obviously sounds—I mean—that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, oh, I'm hey, working on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we had a. It's so I had—we had a meeting this morning. It was a food policy working group. It has taken me four years to get that group started. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying that I think it's really important to acknowledge the mechanics of these things can be glacial in institutions and in councils and in state governments and it is it's the thing about you know is it infrastructure is it space is it behavior change is it a communications problem and realistically it's all those things but I mean I think a lot of it's prevention as well Um, so I think a lot of the solutions about food waste do talk about what to do with food waste rather than saying well why what's driving this in the first place so really getting to that education I think is where we need to be moving the conversation to
0: so just on that, if we've got staff members here and students yes. and they are wanting to compost their food waste here on campus, is there a place they can take it?
1: Yes. Yes, the community garden. Um, it I think... Awesome, yes. yay. So that's really awesome. But, I mean, it, in a way, and I'm not... It's awesome because I really do take so many... And I've also done it in my office and I want to... But I think for me that the office thing's really interesting because I just went and to Bunnings and bought a compost bin and put it in my office and like I'm a PhD student so I'm all over the place and like I will notice if I'm not in the office for a week it doesn't get emptied for a week so it, even though I've got a sign and a map and our office is literally next to the community garden like it could not be closer I still can't get them to walk the 10 steps downstairs to do it themselves and I don't know what the way to do that without just being really passive aggressive and being like just be less bad at this um, so I'm going to say something much ruder but you know what I'm saying but um Just because you make things available for people, it doesn't actually make it easy for people, and I find that really, really curious. But what I was going to say about the community garden, it's awesome, but it's a bit of a victim of its own success because it's often filling up now, and that's still so much community work that goes into managing that compost, goes into managing that, having it resourced by the university to make sure that someone's responsible for it, making sure that that compost can go somewhere... Um, So there is also a digester. So if you're part of the Green Impact Program, I think that's what it's called, you can use... There's a bin at the back of Union House, which is a bit of a secret, and so that's a digester. So you can put more things in just the community garden. Some offices have their own worm farms. You can kind of boss your colleagues into trying to get a worm farm together. And so I think... But I still think a lot of those things end up being like the passionate people who are doing that extra work and quietly, usually women, um, who are doing that in their offices and sort of being the bossy ones, you know, nattering at their colleagues to get these changes happening. And I mean, personally, I think, why does the university does not have some sort of funding system where every single office can apply for a worm farm and then be trained how to use it and that kind of thing? So I think it, it once again goes into that nested responsibility. How do we sort of collectively change? This? But community gardens are awesome. Go hang out there and use the compost. <laughs> and follow the rules. And follow the rules. <laughs> <laughs> That's sick.
0: I've introduced you in earnest and and made an apology because you're busy teaching and have made your way all the way to Parkville um, for this. So, Nick Rose, everyone. We've been talking about, you know, the confusion around making decisions about what to actually eat for ourselves and planet and sometimes how those decisions can be complicating or complicated and we just moved on to waste in the food system. But now I'm kind of thinking we can change tack a little bit and talk about some of the complexities of where food, climate and sustainability kind of intersect, and perhaps take a moment to actually talk about what a sustainable food system might actually look like. So we hear a lot about what sustainable food systems could be, but it seems like there's, there's a little bit of differences of opinion about what that might be and what it might take to actually get there.
3: Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Sorry I'm a little bit late. Um, thank you for the introduction. let me me catch my breath a little bit. So, yeah, big question, sustainable food system. Have we talked about Aboriginal food systems yet and Indigenous food sovereignty? No? OK, all right. So that would be, I think, a good place to start, perhaps, to acknowledge that before we, as non-Aboriginal Australians, I should say if there are any Aboriginal people here, um, I wish to acknowledge them, acknowledge that we are on Aboriginal land, that sovereignty was never ceded, but as a non-aboriginal australian it's important to recognise and acknowledge that people occupied this land continuously according to some estimates up to 80 or 90,000 years prior to 1788 and they fed themselves they fed themselves from this land from its waterways from its soil from its ecosystems through all those thousands of generations so if we are seriously wishing to engage with this question of what a sustainable food system is for this country, for Australia. I think that's a really good place to begin the conversation, to reflect on how those many generations of Aboriginal people, 600 different Aboriginal nations across this country, lived and managed this land, uh, stewarded this land uh, for all that period of time.
1: Just to jump in there, if you haven't had a chance, uh, you can see over there there's a part of the Living Pavilion is an Indigenous community garden, and I think that's a really good opportunity to actually understand a little bit about what this means because I've definitely been in situations where I've been overseas and someone says, oh, what's Australian food? And I'm like, well, look, there's two different questions you're asking. One is what do we eat every day in Australia and, like, what did my grandmother feed me, which was meat and three veg. The other is what is the history of food and resilient food, native food here. And I think that goes back to the earlier conversation we were having about literacy... I don't think we're taught that. I don't think we talk about it. I don't think we know how to use those ingredients. I don't think we know how to procure that food from businesses that we know that are managed, run, and decisions are made by Indigenous people and making sure that that money is going back into communities. So I think that also goes to the literacy thing, is acknowledging that as a community-building thing, but also as a practical act of eating and working out how to respectfully engage with these practices and regain some of that. I don't want to say lost knowledge, because that sounds very final, but, you know, rebuilding the knowledge around things. Like, I know, Nick, you've had a lot of interesting conversations with people like Bruce Pascoe around things like harvesting and using native grains, and that's knowledge that we're sort of trying to refind right now.
3: Absolutely. So, yeah, just to, to pick up on a point Sophie made there in terms of where that food comes from, there is a bit of a, a trend, it's a bit fashionable now to have indigenous foods and native food. Where this is starting, there was a really great article in The Guardian, I think, came out last week about the first indigenous rooftop farm in Sydney, interestingly in collaboration with a developer that are often seen as the you know the bad guys in terms of the food system, in this city at least, and that's another dimension of sustainable food systems. Just to segue a little bit, land is obviously fundamentally important. Some of our best soils uh, in this city but also in our other urban areas around this country are being uh, literally covered in concrete um, because they are seen as more valuable in the real estate market for subdividing as housing. Far more valuable than actually what they have been traditionally used for both pre-1788 and post-1788 which is growing food. That's a critically important issue. If you're interested in finding out more about that, there's a great research team here at Melbourne University that have been looking into that in some depth and detail. They're called Food Print uh, Melbourne. A great series of reports that have come out on that. But also another vision of the future of sustainable food systems is a more kind of techno-utopic future climate-controlled agriculture. Has anyone been into the supermarkets recently and bought a tomato, a trust tomato? Yeah, if you've bought a trust tomato, there's a chance... that that has come from a massive monoculture in um, semi-arid South Australia, in Wyala, from a farm called Sundrop Farms, a huge uh, 20 hectare hydroponic farm that does nothing but grow tomatoes and hydroponics, which um, arguably is sustainable because it's using desalinated water, it's powered by solar power, but, you know, questions about the taste of those tomatoes, they taste a lot of water, questions about their nutritional content and also questions about the fact that they're propping up a food system that is dominated by two major corporations that are really making life very tough for a lot of Australian farmers. So this is a a complex and and difficult and important question.
1: I think uh, one of the things that you're sort of skirting on there is really something that is not talked about as much, which is really around biodiversity. And I think, you know, one of the things I was talking about earlier was about making context-dependent decisions when you're eating, and part of that is local food. And I think if you head over there to the community garden, there's a great uh, calendar about the six seasons in the Indigenous calendar. We've wholesale imported this Western European agricultural system into this country that is, you know, sometimes incredibly hostile, just in terms of its climatic variation and topographical variation. It's a huge country. But I think in terms of taking a global slant to this kind of thing, that kind of specificity is also really important in terms of different kinds of Indigenous knowledges. Like, I recently received this wonderful book about the Sioux Indigenous Kitchen looking at Native American ingredients, and that's a literacy that I think is missing from American cooking as much as it's missing from Australian cooking. But, you know, I think, as you say, that that knowledge is embedded in, you know, 90,000 years of history. That is an intimate acknowledgement of the water flows and the climate cycles and the biodiversity... The sustainable food system has to maintain biodiversity, so resilience comes out of diversity, and whether that's, you know, cultural diversity, but also there is strength in having different plants growing together rather than acres and acres and acres and acres of soybean fields. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen those pictures of um, Spain where there's just 20, 30, 40 miles of just greenhouses and all it is is roofs, and the, that, that energy that's being used into growing those monocultures is both a food security risk in terms of disease, but also it's it's not particularly healthy or resilient and in terms of that resilience as well maintaining that legacy of the diversity of seeds one of the things I was reading this morning about is often said about climate change like okay well there's going to be more carbon dioxide but cl- plants grow bigger and faster But one of the consequences of that is green leaves grow faster, but not necessarily the flowers that we need for the pollinating, not necessarily the nutritional density of that food. So I think we've got to sort of unpack that sense of just because things might grow bigger and faster, we're not necessarily getting healthy, sustainable, resilient food out of those bigger plants.
3: Yeah. I just want to move it, and I know you had a question, so um, I just want to uh, move this to a... Um, uh, A further level, I think which is important to also talk about, which is uh, questions of philosophy and politics and, to use an academic term, ontology or paradigm shift in terms of how we actually understand ourselves at this point in time and our relationship to what we call nature or to ecosystems. Because I think that's... um, uh, this comes back to the question of indigenous food systems, indigenous food sovereignty and world views or paradigm shifts where, uh, and I don't wish to presume to speak for indigenous people, but my understanding is uh, a cosmology in which indigenous people saw themselves as very much embedded in and part of the broader web of life and ecosystems as one species amongst a huge uh, multiplicity, whereas in our Anglo-Australian-Western capitalist uh, enlightenment framework, Uh, drawing on Judeo-Christian traditions from Genesis and the Bible, we kind of see ourselves as kind of like somehow above and separate and God gave us this earth and, you know, gave man, and I use that word advisedly, gave man dominion over nature to manage and effectively use for, you know, his uh, own purposes. So I think we've kind of, you know, we see that as kind of like a story from the Bible that nobody pays much attention to, but it's kind of, you know, suffused through the cultural DNA and structures our politics and our philosophy and our worldview and our economy, and we need to move beyond that to actually understand that we are part of the web of life, to embrace a more Indigenous cosmology and understanding, and that's part of the shift that will underpin a sustainable food system. So Charlie Massey, in his book called The Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth, I don't know if anyone's heard of that book. If you haven't, suggest you have a look at it. He kind of articulates the regenerative agriculture movement in Australia, which is part of a global movement for agroecology, which is a shift uh, from being led by farmers across the world from a an extractive, uh, chemical-based... Uh, industrial monocultures to polycultures that are working the latest understandings of ecological science about soil microbiomes and how to sustain and maintain lasting soil fertility, that that is part of the bigger shift that will underpin a sustainable food system into the future.
0: I'm really interested in thinking about regenerative agriculture, and I'm very new to this field, but thinking about the use of pastoralism and its connections to colonisation and its absolute devastation to the soil and the organic matter in the soil, I can't get my head around how hooved animals can really actually be part of regenerative agriculture, or if it's actually just that people are connected to in in terms of national identity and sort of cultural food ways, are connected to eating cows and sheep. I'm I'm trying to understand, is it that we can't move away from eating those foods? That means that so you can pasteurise those animals, you can move them around, they can disturb soil... Or can they actually really be part of regeneration? Like, how realistic is it that hard-hoofed animals can be part of regeneration?
1: I feel like I'm sort of saying the same thing again and again. I think it's really context-dependent. I think there are some areas in which it is a terrible idea, you know, and I think you, you're right that there is, there is a colonial legacy to that in Australia where there's been animals put in situations that they should not have been and should not maintain. I am not as particularly technically well-versed in the particularities of it, but I do understand that in certain grasslands it is actually quite a, a part of the thing is that, you know, the way that animals contribute through disturbing the soil. I think... What I understand is it, it's a scale thing. So the idea is you can't keep having a lot of livestock on a very small amount of land for a very, very long time. For an example, uh, one of the farms that I visited, agro agroecological system in Switzerland, had basically the whole farm was divided into 11 plots. And the idea was that that was 11 different commodities that would only come back to each field once every 11 years. And so I think when you redraw the temporal scale and redraw the, the physical scale where you actually talk about doing these things at a very low intensity over a long period of time and making sure that you're putting in as much of the inputs and the care into that land. Certainly, I think in a global scale, there are some climates and topographies that are suited to that. Like I'd say, the, some of the, say, African herding and stuff, that is a response directly to where those animals have originated from and the systems and socio ecological systems are built around livestock. Um, Nick, do you want to add a bit more to that?
3: Yeah, I don't know if I want to speak directly to the technical question about animals in the Australian context, I think I'd agree with what you said about it being context-dependent, and I would defer to, you know, agronomists and agricultural scientists. I think it's a, it's a technical question. What I would say, and this is why I kind of like started from this point, because it's up in most in my mind. Last Thursday, I was at a book launch of a deacon academic called Christopher Mayers. He's just written a book called Unsettling Food Politics, which explores the, you know, the, the, the premise of your question about colonial settler relations and colonial practices, and he's saying that basically the practice of food politics and these kinds of discussions in Australia and food sovereignty in particular needs to be interrogated critically for the very reason that you mentioned, that agriculture and particularly pastoralism and grazing was part of, you know, the settling of Australia, the colonisation of Australia, the dispossession and violent displacement of Indigenous peoples across this country. So when we have these discussions, we need to be acknowledging that that's you know, that all land effectively is stolen land and and we need to be thinking about these questions more fundamentally. I would also say that part of that discussion comes back to the point I was making earlier in terms of, like, our kind of, like, dominant political economy and ways of thinking relating to land being all structured around... And I'm speaking as someone who did a law degree at this very university, you know, 30 years ago, uh, talking about property and private property and property law, assumed uncritically in Australia that we own land and it's us to kind of, like, buy and sell and dispose of as we will... Now we've extended that logic of commodification and property ownership to water. Some of you may have seen what happened to the Darling River and the Menindee Lakes earlier this year as a result of that process of commodification and trading and buying and selling water rights. In relation to um, land clearing and agriculture and biodiversity and climate change, You know, in Queensland they are clearing somewhere in the order of 1,500 football fields every single day to expand livestock agriculture, which in, in no universe other than short-term profit maximisation can that in any way be uh, sustainable. So it's a very important point.
1: Yeah, and I think it's. I don't think it's a final conversation. I think the question you're asking is being asked by a lot of people and I don't think we've arrived at a holistic answer. But There's also some other things I think that are quite interesting, things like silver pasture and looking at more mixed-use systems. How do we
0: get farmers in Melbourne changing their ways in terms of I've done it this way? I'm going to do it
1: like this. Read Charles book. (laughs) I mean, I think Nick just mentioned the call the read Warbler, and I think that's a really interesting book in as much as that he does come from a sort of you know quite traditional background, broadacre farming and.
3: A lot of it comes back to education, I suppose, in terms you know it's not just farming, it's like anything in life. Like how does change happen? A lot of it happens through education, how ideas are transferred, knowledge is disseminated, and practices change. I think there's a great tradition of farmers having a peer to peer horizontal framework of learning from each other, and I think that needs to be encouraged and supported, and that is happening. so the regenerative farming movement is about enabling that. Charlie Massey. To his great credit, has spent months and months over the last eighteen months going round to regional and rural communities, speaking directly to farmers. You know, passing on these lessons, sharing stories of farmers. Um, there is a regenerative farmers network in Western Australia that is supporting this conversation at a statewide level, and at a you know micro level in Victoria, there are groups like the Pop Up Garlic Farmers Group, Farmer Incubator, that are you know creating ways for young people and people interested in agriculture to get access to land to do that. And I think it's through Stories of empowerment and change that are kind of highlighted and shared, and one that I would like to really share, and it's up to most of my mind because I was there on Saturday morning, and I think this is incredibly hopeful and powerful for a number of reasons. This is in Long Warrior, I don't know if anyone knows where Long Worry is. It's uh, about 85 kilometres from where we're sitting now out past Pakenham on the way to Warrigal. This was actually funded through a state government program called Pick My Project, the community grants project that they had last year. Linking uh, a secondary college with a local organic dairy farmer, where she has agreed to make about an acre of land available to high school students so they can go and grow food. My organization, Sustain, as part of the network building we've been doing in Cardinia Shire Council, has connected that farmer with uh, members of the African diaspora, a Liberian woman in particular, and a South Sudanese agricultural scientist. And they have got a, a unified project called the United African Farm Collective. They planted, they put seedlings in the ground there on the 31st of March. On Saturday, they had a harvest festival. There were members of nine different African nations out there in Cardinia at that event. It was broadcast around the world on SBS Dinka Radio through SBS live streaming on Facebook. They told stories of how much it meant to them, not just in terms of growing food and having access to healthy, appropriate food, because you may know that you know members of migrant communities and particularly African communities are disproportionately impacted by dietary-related ill health, so access to fresh, healthy food is very important for them. But in terms of a connection to the land and a feeling of place and belonging and inclusion in this country and also as a very powerful story countering the xenophobia and racism that has been widely portrayed in our media in Victoria about African gangs and gang violence and all this kind of you know, negative uh, pejorative commentary, them standing up and saying to the world through Facebook and through SBS that we are here uh, to work, we don't want to be relying on Centrelink handouts, we want to work, we want to contribute, we want to grow food, we want to create businesses and pathways for our children, we want to contribute to the society and feel included and feel part of it, and this is a way in which we can do that, that is very powerful, and having a, a third-generation white farming family open their land and share their land and make that possible is also incredibly hopeful. So that's the kind of thing. And the great thing was that the new member for Bass, the Labor MP Jordan Krugnali, who was elected last November, was there. She made a statement. She said... I'm going to take this back to Daniel Andrews and the Premier and say that this is the kind of thing that we need to be supporting and happening in communities all around Victoria.
1: There's another example in Mildura Sunraysia that they're doing some interesting stuff. And I think that goes to the same thing about resilience. So, you know, that diversity filters... You know, that's from soil microbiological diversity right through to sort of community, that kind of diversity. So I think it carries through. Not to... I couldn't agree more with all of those things that you've said, but I do think it is really pertinent to discuss that part of that agency that you're discussing, it has to be political. And I think, you know, someone made the point the other day that they very begrudgingly sat through the Liberal Party campaign launch the other night and said that it was extraordinary to see the Deputy Prime Minister speak for 20 minutes about the drought and not mention climate change once. I mean, part of this conversation that we're having is part of the art plus climate equals change. And I think... I just sort of had this, like, constant moment of, like, you know, existential heartbreak, just to be a bit dramatic about it, of thinking about, you know, when I went to protests when I was 15, like, this is 17 years ago, and, you know, I was just like, oh, we're about to do something about the environment. We're about to do something about the environment. And we're having an election in 2019 where climate change isn't really being talked about. And I think the thing is, is it's really absolutely crucial that we get that intergenerational knowledge happening and we get young farmers, but we need to sort of think about electoral policies more broadly, about things like land ownership and access to land and peri-urban water licences and how much that water costs and is that something that young people can participate in and can do that and can we get indigenous farmers to own businesses so they actually have that food sovereignty? (laughs) So I think about thinking about the politics of food quite literally as more broadly than just, you know, it's not just nutrition policy and we have this very trade-oriented kind of policy around food rather than having... You know, we don't have a Ministry of Food. sort of ends up in these funny places, a little bit in health and a little bit in trade and a little bit of that kind of thing. But to demand more of politicians to actually have these conversations and use... I can't believe I'm saying in 2019. Get people to say the word climate change and believe that it's a thing and do something about it. And I think... I feel kind of disingenuous saying that because I don't know how to do it. I've been I've been trying to do it for my, most of my life, and I don't know how to do it. But I think it's incumbent upon us to not stop asking for that from our leaders and that's at a local level and a state level and a federal level and an international level
0: on activism i did want to actually ask you around some of the projects you've been helping to instigate here on campus so that people are actually aware of that if they're working and studying here uh, the things that they might like to get involved in as well around food on campus
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, policy is really important. So, as I said, we're just trying to get a food policy off the ground. And I think one of the important things from that is community consultation. So, last year, we held a series of lunches and got 1,100 answers from the community about what they want about food. So, taking that as the basis of policy is really important. So, just stay tuned for that. So, we're going to sort of be trying to roll out that policy consultation, you know, building that policy with community input throughout the year. I mean, little things. I mean, once again, I think this falls in that line of personal responsibility versus, you know, structural reform. But... We hire out cups and plates to stop single-use plastic. So if you're running any events or something, please come and talk to us, um, and we will give you cutlery, plates, cups, washing stations, volunteers. We'll try and organise that for you to get that going. We have a mobile bike kitchen, so if you want to do like a sustainable food event, we can wheel it out and you know do some cooking, and we've uh, got all that thing. So I think you know we're really open to collaborative opportunities to. Making sustainable food something that's possible to talk about on campus? I feel like that's a little bit of a vague answer, but I think it's really important that we make this a normal thing. We have a little shop in Union House as well, so if you have any really particular requests for things that you'd like to see, one of the things we got in our community feedback was, can we please just have some really plain, fresh, healthy, affordable food? I just want to buy an apple, which I think is a really reasonable request. Um, so we've got a little shop that's run by volunteers sort of trying to get that going for, like, just a community-owned store for students by students um, and sort of, like, working collaboratively with the co-op and that kind of thing. So I suppose it's... Uh, the, the overarching thing is just don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness later. Let's just If there's a thing you want to do, come and talk to us and let's do it. I don't, mm. the,
0: the thing that I thought it would be nice to finish up with is just to ask both Nick and Sophie whether they might provide a couple of really kind of their sort of a couple of top tips I suppose for eating sustainably and just really simple things that maybe we can take away.
3: Uh, Well the first thing I would say is that um, I just agree and echo what Sophie said about you know these things being political like like in terms of like the sustainability of the food system uh, I'm not going to pretend, uh, and I don't believe myself, and I don't want you to walk away from here thinking that it's going to be through individual acts of consumption and voting with our fork and our wallet that is going to somehow transform the food system from one that is unsustainable to one that's being sustainable. There are you know, fundamental dynamics at work here that we need to be uh, tackling. Um, that will require, you know, concerted, collective political action and engagement. So that's a lot of what my work is about, um, is, uh, you know, this idea of, of, of a, a more democratic and more participatory uh, food system. Actually, you know, groups like us, people who are concerned about these issues, finding ways in for which for us to get involved and take and take action. So... We have been doing that in Cardinia. So if you are living in Cardinia, I'm not sure if anybody is, but if you're living out there, there is a Cardinia Food Network that's involved that is actually being supported by the local government, uh, which through our work, similar to what Sophie's just talking about in the process on campus, we engaged with uh, hundreds of residents across Cardinia Shire in a process called the um, Development of a Cardinia Community Food Strategy. You can read that online if you like um, through cardiniafoodmovement.org or the Cardinia Shire Council website. It's one of the first documents of its kind in Australia, a participatory uh, citizen-generated food policy document that articulates a roadmap with 63 concrete actions uh, that more than 20 different organisations and institutions have signed up to, to change up Cardinia's food system to one that is uh, sustainable, resilient, fair and delicious. So... I think getting politically involved, if that's not happening in your area, but there are food groups and food networks and food organisations that are all around Melbourne. I would say if you're not part of one of those already, join them. Like get involved with Sophie's Collective here at Melbourne University. Find ones. Uh, There are many uh, around this. um, Sorry? Start one. Yeah. Um, also, uh, one of the reasons that I was first attracted to getting involved in food as a, a way of political activism is because there are so many entry points, and one of it starts with growing some of your own food. I think that's probably one of the best things that you can do in terms of your relation and connection with uh, the land, and also having some good food. You know, the, the tomato that you grow yourself will taste infinitely better than the hydroponic tomato you'll get in Woolworths any day of the week. Well, not any day of the week, you can only get it in, uh, in summer, although with climate change the tomato season is um, extending further and further out. Or join a collective growing, um, you know uh, 3,000 Acres, a great organisation that supports pop-up gardens in North Melbourne, you know, a few streets away people are taking over median strips and putting up, with the support of the City of Melbourne putting up edible verges and transforming lawns into edible growing spaces. Those are all great things to do. And the third thing I would say is build your own food literacy, educate yourself. Like we've mentioned some books here today, Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, Charlie Massey's book, Chris Mayer's book, Raj Patel, you know, there's any number of uh, authors. I think I've even got a book here. Um, Is that right? Um, So a little plug um, on urban food, reclaiming the urban commons, and just touching on the point that was made earlier about climate change, migrant groups, the Food Next Door project that Sophie mentioned in Mildura. That was actually a collaboration involving Melbourne University researchers uh, Leslie Head and Olivia Dunn looking at the role of migrant communities in Victoria in helping meet the, the challenges of climate change. Right, that supported uh, that collaboration between a local food network in Mildura called Sunraysia Food Futures and Burundian migrants uh, who connected with a local landowner to create a Burundian garden. Grow culturally appropriate foods for themselves and start up a social enterprise. So that has a direct link to uh, ongoing research at this university, looking at the role of migrant peoples in helping us meet climate changes. So that that story is told in a chapter in uh, in my anthology, Reclaiming the Urban Commons. So if you're interested in in that, come and talk to me.
1: Just echoing everything Nick just said. You know, always start with the personal and always lead up to the political. Those things are always interconnected. You know, personal is political. Food is political. Um, I think just echoing something I said earlier. I think there's a lot of social graces around food and politeness. I think don't be afraid to sort of be a bit more force-right. Like, I mean, what I was saying, I don't think that, you know, personal choices are going to be, you know, it's very neoliberal to say, you know, we just got to be a bit better and everything will be better. And I don't think that's true in and of itself. But... You know, I spent a year annoying my housemates about using the worm farm, and now, like, my housemate came home, and she's like, I told my dad about it, and he's got a worm farm now. And, like, that's a little thing, but I think actually not being afraid to be like, hey, like, you know, I had this conversation with my grandmother. My ex was a vegetarian, and I was like, is this vegetarian? Is this vegetarian? I was like, does it breathe? No, yes, whatever. You know, but, like, confronting your family, like, you know, I'm not saying go out and have all our arguments with everyone. And there's no reason to be antagonistic about it. But if someone's saying, oh, I don't really know, I don't really like eating, you know, I like to eat meat, cook them a delicious meal and talk about it. It's not necessarily about having to be antagonistic. It's about finding joy in food, falling in love with it and cooking with your friends and talking about it with them and or saying, oh, you know, soy milk's disgusting, which is fine. Like I'm allergic to soy milk, but there are other options if there's (laughs) something you want to explore. And... Tell people about the choices you're making, you know. Like, I was sitting on a plane once and I had a keep cup and the guy next to me went, oh, my God, it's never occurred to me. I could bring my keep cup on an aeroplane. And I was like, yep. You know, and, like, I think just actually demonstrating those things as possible and easy... It isn't the solution to everything. I think you need to be political. We need to vote. We need to change things. We need to enact policies and start movements and start groups. But don't be afraid to be demonstrative and approachable and convivial in the way that you live this life about sustainability. I think that really is the heart of, you know, us not all getting really down about the things that we're talking about because it can get really grim, but I think we've really got to celebrate the good things about food at the heart of what we're doing and get excited about that.
0: Awesome. That is a fantastic place to finish up. So please thank our wonderful panel, Sophie and Nick, today. And thank you to all of you for being here and listening and also asking some fantastic questions. Thank
1: you. And if you are at Melbourne Uni, my email address is my name. You can find me if you want to talk more about food at Melbourne Uni.
0: The Climactic Collective.